Okay. All right. So one of the things that you just said reminded me of the the sequence of events in the mind possibly can go one direction or another. Better say that it can go right or it can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Or it can go north or it can go south. Mm-hmm. And that uh, something will influence that so that it will tend to go in one direction or the other, so that it's not always 50-50. But people tend towards one direction or another. But that's the really interesting point is, is that there's only the up and down or the back and forth or the dark or the heavy uh, versus the light. That's just all uh, there is. and each thought, it's your choice. Mm-hmm. But one of the issues that is about the going uh, on the downside or the dark side is that along the way in the thought moments, there, it be, there becomes a me in there. That in the first original thought moment, it will be an image flash in the mind, or maybe just a sight that you see, Mm -hmm. or uh, a sound you hear, or or maybe a piece of a song or whatever. And then we have a thought form sequence, and that thought thought forming sequence is called uh, perception. And that we spend a whole lot less time in actual getting input, but we spend a whole lot of time trying to make sense out of the very little that we do take as input. And that's where we spend a lot of our thought moments, or mind moments, just trying to figure out what it is uh, that is uh, contacting us. To do that, we need to do references in our past mind or the uh, the mind in in the past and so we will use that and the Pali word for that by the way is Sankara and so when we take that Sankara to try to make sense out of what we get that means that, that whatever we do get whatever sense we make out of something on the outside is flavored with the past yeah it's condi- yeah yeah And because of that, um, that's what impacts us, and sometimes it impacts us very heavy, but this is the driver or the motivator, is not what's real, but what we make out of it. Mm -hmm. And that um, oftentimes there's a uh, a point in there when uh, this thing that we have created in the mind impacts us and that's what gives rise to feelings but guess what that what that means is is that now we're just having the feeling that was concocted with the sankara because the sankara is loaded down with feelings and so we're almost pre-programming ourselves for how we're going to feel in this present moment from 
the way that we felt in the past. And so things tend to go off in a certain direction with that. Uh, one of the ways we can talk about it would be the distinction between criticism or critical versus nurturing. That nurturing is, you know, nice and valuable, wholesome, and that critical would be then unwholesome uh, or, uh, oh no, you cannot have your cake until you eat your broccoli kind of uh, ideas or language. Or uh, let us say, um, delayed gratification, I think, is the term that they use. Though I haven't thought about that term for a long time, but that's exactly what's built into it, is, is that you can't have joy now. You have to do something or wait some time or perform somehow, and then you can feel good. And in a great, great big sense, you can't feel happy on this earth now. you got to wait until you're dead, and then you can be happy. But you see, the further out you go, the more magical that is. I'm sorry, Damarato, I just lost you for the last sort of five seconds. My Wi-Fi went down. You just repeat what okay. you were saying. What was the last thing that you heard? Um, I, I heard you saying, uh, so feeling is conditioned by um, perception. Oh, no, it was talking about delayed gratification. Yeah. Okay, all right, so we can take it from that concept of delayed gratification. And that that's also that whole idea of delayed gratification is in fact part of that going south. In other words, you can't have what you want now. But the teachings of the Buddha is everything about everything is okay now. And that uh, there's no reason for us to either put in that delay for our gratification or anything else in uh, in in the regards of something's wrong with it. That, that that often is what is the delayed gratification is. How can I possibly be gratified with what you just gave me? Because I think what you just gave me is junk. Okay. And. Many times we think that gift is junk without even looking at it. We just assume it's going to be junk. Why would we assume that? Well, from the past, we've always gotten junk, so this must be junk too. Right. This is where the Buddha's... Hmm? Dissatisfaction. Yes, precisely. And so this is where the concept of the Buddha comes in with the investigation. And that if we're investigating things at the right time, then that is what is called wisdom at the point of contact. So that when things contact us, instead of letting those old feelings arise that would be natural, instead, we can take a second look. We can look at what's going on. This is basically uh, that phrase that I use, wisdom at the point of contact is uh, uh, a pet phrase of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasas, is one that he's very famous for. And that wisdom at the point of contact also has to do with the, the, the concept of sati, to wake up. 
and that waking up at this particular point in time is pretty early in the process because you've woken up before even feelings arise. Right. Yeah, the moment, okay. and that's what I was talking about. It's the moment you see the thought and the identity, you know, then before you even attach to it, you just, right? Yeah. It can happen very, very quick. Very quick. And if that, if we're not aware, if we're not wise, the ordinary mind, if those feelings arise, one of the possibilities along that path is, is that we become that feeling, or I am angry, or I am this feeling. So there, this is where the self comes from. Mm -hmm. The self comes from um, ignorant feelings. That's the way of expressing it, in fact. That's the entire second noble truth. If you look at it right there, the second noble truth is stated wow. as what is the cause of dukkha? The answer is greed, ill will, and ignorance. Okay. Well, what is greed but nothing but a driven feeling? What is the feeling? I like it, which will lead to I want it which will lead then to, I've got to have it. And there's where the I comes in. And sometimes it's only like two or three, maybe three or four mind moments from the initial contact. When, it's, when it hits you, by then, uh, the liking arises. That would be one mind moment. And from that liking goes into the grasping and clinging, or in the Pali, that would be uh, upadana or at tanha. Actually, tanha is the first. Wanting it, grasping at it, and then actually grabbing hold of it and clinging, this is mine, yep. is also uh, the birth of the self. That's how the so self the, becomes. So it's the desire, so it's the feeling, and then it's desire. And then the clinging is, is the, the birth of the self, is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. That okay. the clinging is right. What what clings? Right. Me. <laughs> and so we're stopping. The desiring isn't the problem. It's the clinging, right? Um, actually, what the interesting thing is, is that in real life, what happens is the sooner people wake up, mm -hmm. the less dukkha they will manufacture. So we want to catch it right at the moment of the pleasant feeling. Or and if you feeling. can catch it at the point of contact, then you can control how you feel about anything. You become able to manage and control your own feelings. This is how it's done. So even is that does that even extend to so, you know, it, it, we talk about feeling as in um, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, or is that is that something? I know where you got that. Let me let me work on it a little bit. Okay. First off, you have to understand that you're not speaking in the language of the Buddha or in the Pali. Mm -hmm. That you're speaking in a translated into English version of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm not saying that what you said is wrong, but that it needs some explanation so that you can understand what you're talking about. Yeah. The first thing that we can say uh, to get to clear it out of the way 
is there's really no such thing as a neutral feeling because a neutral feeling is like no feeling at all. Yeah. In the Pali, uh, they use the word, actually, the words of dukkha and sukha. So that, that in fact, the actual feelings themselves have dukkha built into it in the sense of don't like it. Because mm-hmm. don't like it already has the seed of a self in there. To finish the sentences, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or it hurts me. So I'm uh, always in there. That I is always in that position as a seed. But by the time the grasping and clinging, it's now become or fully born. Mm -hmm. And this is the concept that's been used throughout the ages. And when people don't understand it or have magical thinking, they think it's actually a physical rebirth or reborn rather than the understanding no it is the thing that's reborn that me that self is actually that which then bears the suffering in the sense of anything that's born then is going to get old get sick and die and we're talking about perhaps only two three or four mind moments later we're dead meat. <laughs> so those those four things, you know, the being born, aging, sickness, and death. That's that's a metaphor as well for for within the mind moments. Is that the, the death of because the self arises? That's the death of the self. Is it you're talking about? Yes, the the self arises only to painfully commit suicide. That's yeah, its he, only job. If you watch it, it just, as well as being continually born, it's continually dying every moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, people can get stuck in a rut, spin their wheels, and create a self that dies and another self that dies and another self that dies. And every time they think about that deed that, that they don't like, they die a yet another death. This is how they have the, the in conversation to talk about that... Uh, a coward dies a thousand deaths, mm-hmm. but the hero dies but once. And even thinking about physical death, you know, I, you hear all of the the masters and, and things talking about the, overcoming birth and death, and I think it extends beyond. It's not just the my moments. It's also if you if you overcome the concept of of death, then there is no such thing really. I don't know. There's no death right now where 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 I am right now. Well, there's no birth or sickness. Okay. You're right so far. Right. <laughs> That's correct so far. All right. That mostly what death is to most people is conceptual or concept. Most people have not had to deal with corpses. I've dealt with a few corpses. Mm-hmm in various contexts finding patients in a rest home dead in their bed in the morning or dead lying on the floor or sitting with a low lady on the couch while you watch her die okay that's the kind of stuff as well as as a buddhist monk then of attending a whole lot of funerals (laughs) 
poor Havoc. I did learn, at least I learned some of the funeral chants by heart. <laughs> so, yes, uh, and, de- and learning to deal with one's own death and the anticipation of death, knowing that whatever happens, that you can deal with it. Because, in fact, the part that you were missing there is not the concept of death versus the reality of dealing with it as it really happens right in front of you or it happens right here, much closer to home, is that it's not the concept of death at all. This the issue. It's the fear of mm-hmm. death, the fear of losing oneself and of losing one's possessions and uh, there's also, uh, this is built right into the biology, down to the level of really? what we call the survival instinct. Mm-hmm. That which has been keeping us alive all along, no matter how old you get, eventually that self-preservation instinct has to meet its boss. <laughs> He's going to die. Okay, and that's the whole function of the self-preservation instinct, which means that generally with people who have not able to control their mind, it's like in those last mind moments of death, it's like panic or a cornered animal Mm -hmm. or um, in some cases like out on the battlefield that the, the last few mind moments will be of um, anger and, and wrath or re- wanting revenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, yeah, he's just stabbed me and now I'm dying, but I can pick up this sword and jab him before I... Yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, there's many things, but generally what happens is is that You've perhaps heard the, 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 uh, the statement that, oh, well, he brings the worst out of you. He's mm-hmm. like, I only see you behave badly when you're around that kid or something mm-hmm. like that. I, somebody told me that once, and so that kind of stuck. Because uh, I think, oh, enlightenment, all I have to do is avoid that kid, and I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> good luck. Yeah, good luck with that one. But that whole concept of the worst in us Mm -hmm. is brought out under, um, let us say, the worst circumstances, and dying is generally the worst thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if you can reconcile in your mind that, well, wait a minute, if that's the worst thing that happened, then I'm good to go because I can handle that. Yeah. If I can handle dying, because a lot of people, they don't handle it very well. Mm-hmm. But if I'm mindful, I can handle it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It feels like this. Go on, go on. Well, you probably got a question about that. Go ahead. Oh, no, it wasn't a question. It was, it was, a, it was a statement, so continue. All right. So, in any case, we're talking about really, really big issues here. Mm-hmm. And that... Uh, that we can't start out that way. We've got to kind of uh, start off easy. Mm-hmm. In other words, a person who's never played the piano before 
is uh, and you would set him down at a piano and then put something like a Beethoven sonata or a Chopin waltz on sheet music in front of him and expect him to play it, he's not going to be able to, right? Right. But he could have if he had 15 or 20 years of piano lessons already. Right. Okay, so now we're talking. All right, so this is what we mean is, is that in those tense moments of death, to be ready for death when it happens means that we've got to get ready before it happens. And along the way of doing that big one, we get to the point of saying, hey, wait a minute, if I'm ready for that one, if I can handle that, I can handle anything. And now here's where that lion's roar of the right attitude begins to shine. Yes. Right. This is the right attitude, is I can handle even dying. And if I could just interject, I've, I've noticed in a very small way that in a very small way that already is beginning to show itself in that before, you know, I'm generally quite an anxious person and afraid of a lot of things. But slowly, slowly, there's a realization that that all of this conditioned stuff, it can't really be touched by anything. It can't be whatever. Nothing, no circumstances can actually get get you. Do you know what I mean? There's no person to get. And and slowly things start. You, you realize everything's, you know, but it's not there for but certainly death. I've not conquered death yet <laughs> or a lot of other things. <laughs> Funny you would say it like that because it is it can be said with that metaphor. That the sting of death is actually the fear of death mm-hmm. and conquering death is not conquering the physical death, but it's conquering the dying or the the sting. Mm-hmm. The death has no sting is a, a, a very poetic way of, of saying it. I wonder where they got that phrase. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I heard them sing about it in church. <laughs> uh, so, this is the quality that if we, but that's the end of the journey, you see. It's in the, it's the end of the journey in many ways, including that it will be, let us say, the final performance. Yeah. Okay, it's the final curtain, so they say. Yeah. I'm, so, and in the, I'm so sorry to interrupt you again, because you're sharing all this great. I have to ask, I have to ask. I don't know. I mean, you probably maybe you don't know the answer. I don't know. So you've talked about how how there's no such thing as rebirth. It's just magical thinking. Right. Uh, so. So. Or is that I, am I, I misinterpreting? I, people would put those words in my mouth. There uh, ain't no yeah. such thing as. That's not, not the right, what I would yeah. say. It's it's not. Ri- I would say instead that it is irrelevant. OK. Teaching. Okay. Because what we're really going to be working on, and that's where we're bringing this whole idea of death, and see, you went dot only to death, but somewhere even beyond that, and I'm trying to bring you back out of okay. the future, okay. into the here now anyway, of how do we practice to get ready for the end of the journey, and the way that we do that is by getting ready for this present moment. Okay. Because when you do die, it will be one of these present moments. 
And if you are ever reborn after that, that too will be one of these, this present moments. Ah, so if you can get ready so you can handle this present moment, then you can handle any of them. And that's really the champion, because not only is death has no sting, but future lives have no sting and the future has no sting, mm -hmm. which means there's nothing to fear. That's com complete confidence. Mm -hmm. And beyond the uh, and um, let us say beyond those big absolutes that we keep seeing out there back to this present moment at this point in time there are no snakes on the floor there are no alligators there are no big giant bugs about to pick me up off this porch and carry me off into the air or birds either for that matter <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> and so we can actually feel safe and secure you see most of us have let's say just a little bit of adrenaline going all the time that we feel just a little bit unsafe yeah. all the time yeah so what we need to do is to practice becoming very safe in this present moment that this is one of the things to practice mm -hmm. this is part of the package of anapanasati is to practice this why because we normally are ignorant of our feelings rather than wise at the point of contact because in fact if you were wise at the point of contact then the wisdom would say hey there really is no danger why should I freak out now mm -hmm. right so that's the wisdom that we bring in there and say hey man everything's already okay never mind what I'm feeling because what I'm feeling is just old feelings anyway I'm just rehearsing and practicing old feelings and when we become wise. So back to those three kinds of feelings that we were talking about that happen is, is that there's the, the dukkha and the sukha. And then that third feeling is called a dukkha, a sukha in some places and dukkha, sukha, vedana in others. Okay. And so what it's talking about is There, I'll give you a side uh, issue. There are six different ways to answer a yes and no question. Okay. Okay. The yes and no question can be answered yes, it can be answered no, it can be answered both, and it can be answered neither, and it can be answered uh, I don't know, and it can be answered I don't care. Right. Okay, well, why is I don't know and I don't care is, is that I don't know means and it still may be relevant. But when I don't care, that means that it's completely irrelevant. And so when you someone would ask me, uh, does rebirth exist or not? Mm -hmm. I'm going to take that sixth answer. Yeah, that it actually is irrelevant because it's not something that I know about. But what I do know about is this present moment. So let's make the most of it. Mm -hmm. And we do that by looking and watching and noting what we, what's going on so that we can maintain and stay in the wholesome. But this Asukadama, uh, uh, or Vedana rather, 
actually is when we don't know how to feel. We don't know whether we like it or not. Uh, we don't react. It, it's confusion, and sometimes confusion is really, really a powerful emotion, mm -hmm. a powerful feeling. And so that that um, that kind of Vedana, uh, we want it to resolve. We don't like the tension of it. And so the natural place, because of old habits and possibilities and whatnot, it's better to put it into the negative than it is into the positive. Mm -hmm. In other words, if it, we don't know whether it's dangerous or not, but we should treat it like it's dangerous, just in case it might be. Yeah. Okay, that's where we things lead to false positives in the sense that we wind up seeing fear and feeling fear in a situation that if we look at it and inspect it again, we recognize that, hey, it's okay. But if we don't, if we don't wake up, then we naturally will think that I don't know what it is, but it might be dangerous, therefore it is dangerous. And so it's the natural tendency is for that um, a dukkha, a sukha vedana to fall into dukkha vedana. Very easy, very quickly. One wine moment is all it takes. <laughs> and so we need to be pretty sharp in there to wake up to that stuff so that we can see confusion as confusion. And if we can see confusion as confusion, then we have the opportunity to turn that from um, confusion into curiosity. Mm -hmm. What is curiosity? That means let's take another look, let's investigate. But we have to do it wisely now. That's the wake-up call. So where does confusion, um, mindful confusion, winds up in curiosity and more investigation? And unmindfully, confusion winds up in dukkha. Okay, in ignorance conditions dukkha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, do all pleasant and unpleasant sensations start as a neutral sensation and then well gets... i used to think two out of three mm -hmm. that you know you have confusion that leads to dukkha uh vedana and then you have the dukkha vedana but at least you've got the sukha vedana mm -hmm. until we understand oh no we need wisdom with it too because otherwise that will be the drive of the greed and the sense of i like it therefore i want it uh, or let us say liking occurs then wanting occurs, and then I want it, or I've got to have it occurs. Yeah. Okay, so about three yeah. mind moments later, there's a me in there someplace ready to keel over dead. That <laughs> <laughs> we always give birth to a sickling, a victim. In yeah. fact, the self is always a victim. It does seem that way, isn't it? Yes, the self is always a victim. It's never a happy but self. When, well, when we feel, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's never a happy self, but there could be a self arising that's saying I'm contented right now, but then that's tinged with the with the fear of losing the contentment. I'm sorry. No, fear I'm just I'm wittering. I'm just wittering. Continue. 
Okay. Um, this sequence that we've been discussing that happens in just two or three or four mind moments, mind moment of consciousness, second mind moment of the processing, third mind moment of the contact, fourth mind moment of the feelings. What are we going to do at that point? Okay. And the question is, how long did it take us to wake up? Or are we still asleep and not paying attention to what's going on? Because the next mind moment after that is going to be the wanting, which goes to clinging. These things sometimes take only one mind moment. Now, when I say a mind moment, I'm talking about a tenth of a second. That, in fact, there's uh, websites uh, that uh, for reaction time, and the, and the screen will be red. And then as soon as the screen turns green, then you click. And how long does it take your computer and your mouse together and you to take, to take the green screen that's on the screen into being a mouse click? And if you're really sharp, you can do it in 200 milliseconds, which is, in fact, two mind moments. Okay. Okay? The mind moment of seeing the green, the second mind moment is the, is the click. Ah, uh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... That can only be done if you're really ready for it. So you're sitting there anticipating, ready for that. So when that thing turns green, you can click it immediately, right? Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. If that's the way that we do it, maybe that's what meditation is all about anyway, is to being right on the edge of our chair, waiting for the mind to go south. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it does, we've got it. We're not going to let the mind go into ignorant feelings of wanting or hating or uh, dukkha, that we're going to keep the mind sharp. This is what we mean by wisdom at the point of contact. But does it need to be, does it need to be sort of a conditioned inclination towards returning to the present rather than, because if it's a conscious trying to, con trying to watch the mind, then that's creating another... Um, Actually, to be honest with you, there's a whole lot of stuff to keep track of. Okay. That in, in a way of looking at it, that someone who is really good at Anapanasati is juggling 14 juggle um, pins. <laughs> and that's quite, a, I mean. <laughs> so, so it is It is sort of a, a um, conscious intention then, rather than a remember, well. Mm -hmm. I'm okay, sorry if I keep we, taking you off track. By the way, do tell me if I'm. No, I'm, you're not. No, okay. we're we're if if the track is is to place you into understanding of how the mind works, then we're on the right track. Okay, that's good. And your questions will keep us on that track. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a lot to keep track of. And one of them is keep track of what's happening in the mind. What kind of thoughts do you have? To do that investigation, keeping track of, in fact, is another word for investigation, mm -hmm. which is highly closely associated with one's right view. And what we mean by right view is that you can't view something if you don't look. <laughs> and right view means you really are looking. 
And it also has to do with uh, with a wider perspective that you're not just looking down at something intensely. You're looking at everything. Mm -hmm. And you're taking a different point of view. One of the ways of looking at it is that the sniper is on the side of the hill over here and he's looking down on the, that villa down there and uh, his mark just went to the other side of the villa. What is he going to do? He can't see his mark. I guess he's going to have to crawl through that whole jungle to the other mountain on the other side. But by the time he does that, his mark is going to be on this side of the villa anyway. So what is he going to do? Changing one's viewpoint is what we're getting out of this, is that we have to change our viewpoint. Which means taking everybody's viewpoint. This is what we mean also by Karuna, or being able to see anything from anyone else's point of view. But when one of the things for sure is that we have to become unattached to our own point of view, otherwise it's hard to go take somebody else's point of view. And so getting out of our own way uh, like that. So the investigation, the looking, the taking note of what's going on, how, how fast is that operation for you? Because in the beginning, people start out pretty slow. Are you asking me? Well, no, I'm asking you to ask you. Okay. <laughs> okay. As part of your investigation, in yeah. fact. Yeah. Okay. Me, personally, I don't care. I'm just here <laughs> to have fun with you. <laughs> here to twist your mind just a little bit, see if we can get the thing started. <laughs> so, um, this sequence that, of events that we've been talking about has a Pali name, and the Pali name is Paticca Samupada. Have you ever heard of that name before? Yeah. Well, that's what we've been doing. Pardon? Is, is that dependent origination? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Everything then that we're talking about here is dependent, but it doesn't rise by itself. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the Paticca Samupada points out that we don't really live in the real world anyway. We live in our imagined world that is uh, packed together uh, out of components of the, the reality of the moment and our remembered past that we keep bringing into it to see what's going on. The, the joy of that is, is that the less we use of the old self or the, of the old past, then the less processing we have to do, and the less processing we have to do, the more time, the more mind moments we can spend in reality, right. in the senses. Right. And this is the part of the waking up, is to, is to be here now, is to be in the senses and not in the mind. But along with that comes a sense of well-being. Because, in fact, the feelings and the thoughts are often in dialogue with each other. And that um, uh, in psychology, they talk about that as... Um, that dialogue is between the superego and the id, mm -hmm. or in uh, Burns' uh, version, it's the parent and the child. Now, the child's language is the feelings, and the parent's language is concepts. Concepts and words and rules. Concepts, in fact, are nothing but 
complicated rules. Okay. And we live in a world of concepts, and those concepts or those rules then are then um, vocalized mentally to ourselves in the sense of giving ourselves orders. Mm-hmm. And then the id, the child within, or the uh, uh, more reptilian, the more primitive part of the brain that does the feeling, he doesn't like it. And so when the brain, when the uh, parent uh, in the head says, you ought to do blah, blah, then we feel bad because we don't want to do blah, blah. But that rule is in there. Okay. So what we really need to do in our meditation is to turn that rule system off or to rearrange it so that it's nurturing. Instead of finding out something that's wrong or something that needs to be done so that you can be happy. You just allow the child within to be happy now. Here, broccoli, cake, take your choice. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do this in order to get that. But you see, all of that rule system built on concepts always has that one-two punch, the duality of do this and get a reward. That's what the whole law of karma is built upon. And from the law of karma, if you put a face on that karma machine, a face called God or something, then it's still all about right and wrong. Okay, the duality. And in fact, this is the story of Adam and Eve. And the story of Adam and Eve, really, I'll give you the very shorthand version. And then later, if you want, I'll give you the longhand version. It's really interesting. But really what the Adam and Eve story is, is Adam and Eve are eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is the results, then, of our knowledge of good and evil, which means our judgments or our value systems. Mm -hmm. So if we have a value system or a judgment call, then we've got to put up with the results of that, especially if that judgment or value system is implanted this direction, and we've surely got to eat the fruit of it. And in that regard, this is exactly how Adam and Eve, like each one of us, gets thrown out of our own paradise. Mm -hmm. Is by saying, oh, this is a nice paradise, but wait a minute, that tree's got a yellow leaf. Let me take a minute and I'm going to tear that tree up by the roots, throw it out, burn it or something, and then I'll have a nice paradise here. And if I continue down that road, I'm going to have a desert. That's where it starts. Pardon? That's where it starts, that one tree, ripping up that one tree. I want to fix it. I want to rip it up. I can't, I can't possibly tolerate the fact that I'm in paradise right now. This is a judgmental mind. This mind that we're talking about, this judgmental mind, is all, uh, also known as the critical mind. And that's exactly the way that Byrne described the two parent ego states, is the critical parent and the nurturing parent. So we need to begin to nurture ourselves, what the Buddha would call um, gladdening the mind, putting in a more wholesome dialogue, start to have wholesome thoughts, nurturing thoughts in, and not allow the mind to have unwholesome thoughts. And one of the unwholesome thoughts that students begin to have very early, but they continue on the whole practice. In fact, if there's any catch, 
that keeps students falling over, over and over again, is this one same thing. And that is, is that, for instance, the mind wandered away. That's the one that Gawenka talks about. When the mind wanders away, never mind, start again. But instead, people don't do that. When the mind wanders away, they say, dang it, you're not supposed to wander away. I hate it when you wander away. This meditation stuff is so hard. Oh, well, I, mean, I have worked and I have strived and I have worked so hard, I must not understand how to do this meditation stuff. And so that's when we're critical. We woke up just enough to turn on that critical parent. We need to wake up fully so that we can turn on the nurturing parent instead. Because the nurturing parent is going to say, ah, never mind. Start again. So I've noticed, I've noticed since our first conversation, um, when I come back to being present, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of think, Ah, well, sort of. This is good. I'm, I'm sort of back to being present. But I realized before that it's, it's more like, oh God, I was lost. You know, I wasn't mindful. But it's that's the wrong attitude, isn't it? That's exactly right. We've got to change that attitude. So we've got to change a lot of stuff. So this is why um, <laughs> that investigation is so valuable. Yeah. Is because we're actually going to investigate even the attitude. In fact, we're going to investigate. How's our investigative skills going right now? Mm -hmm. We're going to investigate. How is my sati? How fast is the mind? How can I, you know, how quick can I wake up and see what this mind is doing in these just a few mind moments? The next one is, what's, what's my right effort? Am I putting in just enough effort? Because the just enough effort is when it's really easy. When this is hard work, we can already tell something's wrong here. And mostly it's uh, that we're putting in too much effort. And guess what? The too much effort doesn't yield results. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have the attitude of this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Poor me. We sort of, we sort of burn ourselves out and then, and then give up and go to uh -huh. no, not enough effort. And then, oh, well, I should try harder. And it's sort of like a seesaw. Yeah. And... Um, some people will lean towards one and the other people will lean towards the other so that some people don't even finish their first retreat. Mm -hmm. They walk out after two or three days, I've had this. I've had about as much enlightenment as I can stand. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so um, the other side of the coin is those who work and strive and they want something so bad. They don't know quite what it is, but they've heard that meditation will do it for them. And they've tried so many other things, including skydiving and motorbikes and all kinds of stuff. So let's go do this one too. And, I, and then we put in way too much effort. <laughs> That's me. And I think it's, tried, it's occurred to me, it's, it's because my, my father is sort of an overachiever. And I think it, it was instilled in me from a young age to this sense of having to achieve something. And so I tried achieving lots of other things. Um, uh -huh. And then I and then I realized none of it was going to work. So, well, I'll achieve enlightenment then. That will do it. But 
enlightenment is not a, a trophy. I know that's well. That's the thing. It's another trap, isn't it? To try and achieve enlightenment. But that's what I. That's what I started tr- thinking I had to do. So even now I'm trying to. But it gets subtler and subtler, doesn't it? Then it becomes oh, I, I have to achieve um, being mindful now. Or I have to achieve. You know, it becomes more and more subtle. But we're still, still this achieving mind. One of the expressions that has been used is desire, desiring desirelessness. Mm-hmm. Desiring desirelessness or, or that. In the Zen tradition, often they will tell the student, you're already enlightened. What do you want already? Mm-hmm. Sit down and enjoy your life. This mm-hmm. is what Zen is all about. But in fact, Zen and the Theravada is exactly the same jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. The only difference between Zen and Theravada is <laughs> Zen puzzle has a few pieces missing. <laughs> couple of pieces gone here and there. But interestingly, it would seem to me that a lot of the Theravada tradition as it's been interpreted, interpreted by the West has been interpreted with the Western sort of achieving minds, like you said before. A lot of, you know, it, uh, people yes. get this idea of trying to achieve. So actually, actually, I needed to do the Zen thing because just to beat it into me that, you know, that the error of thinking in that way. Um, well, at least that much of Zen has caught on in the West, so maybe all they needed was the picture frame instead of the whole show. But in the Theravada, yes, there's a lot of uh, pitfalls for people to fall into desires of wanting this, that, and the other thing, uh, or ritualizing it. Mm-hmm. But in fact, meditation itself has become ritualized. When we, think, when we talk about... I, when I talk about meditation, I'm talking about the way that people think about meditation. And when I'm talking about real stuff, I use the word anapanasati. Right. Okay. And so meditation is, in fact, a kind of a visual image of a meditation hall with some cushions and maybe some incense and um, um, uh, a candelabra um, and um, uh, maybe a, a Buddha rupa and some stuff like that. And... Um, this is all the mental image that has been given or, 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 or shown to where, in fact, Anapanasati doesn't have anything to do with the posture that you're in. But, in fact, even in the sutras I've come to see, this is, in fact, quite a joke. I howled with laughter when I saw this. Um, the word that in the Pali that is translated into English is um, uh, cross-legged. In, and the place when you see it is is that um, he goes to a hut or to a heap of straw or to an empty hut or to the forest or to the seed of the root of a tree and sits down cross-legged, right? The word that's used is actually the same word that would be used for couch or chair in the word of sitting. And the word cross-legged, crossing and legged and nothing like that is in there, but that's what the Westerners have done with that language. I imagine how many knees have been destroyed from that one mistranslation. But there's so many, <laughs> so many translations. Another yeah. one is like uh, concentration. They yeah, get yeah, that yeah. word from samadhi, but samadhi doesn't mean concentration. It means collecting things together. Mm-hmm. When the mind is samadhi, that means it's unified or collected together. It does not mean that it's concentrated. Concentration is almost a strain. This is where the Zen comes back into it, in the sense of the Zen stick. So, think about it as a koan. Who 
gets hit with the Zen stick. No one. Huh? Is that a cop out? No one gets hit. Um. That's a no. cop out. All right. Let me phrase it this way then. When the Zen master mm-hmm. takes the stick and hits it hard on a shoulder mm-hmm. so as to make a large clapping sound, what frame of mind would the student be in? who's most likely to get hit. Uh, Trying too hard. Or not trying enough. How about not paying attention? Okay, so the sort of falling asleep. Perhaps not paying attention to his posture, perhaps not paying attention to the fact the Zen master is right behind him with the stick. (laughs) But if he knows the Zen master is right behind him with the stick, isn't he going to do just a slight little bit of changing his posture just to let the Zen master know before he gets hit that I know you here. I know you. Here you are. I see you. (laughs) Okay. So that makes sense to you, right? Mm-hmm. This is what Anapanasati is really all about, is to wake up, not to go deep into meditation, mm-hmm. but to be here now, literally, with as many mind moments as possible. So, in fact, the student uh, who is awake and is in this present moment, he's going to know that the Zen master is right behind him. Mm-hmm. In fact, knows where the Zen master is whenever the Zen master is moving around to move. There's about half the students know where he is. <laughs> and the other half are liable to get hit with that stick. Mm-hmm. So is it, there's, there's a lot of this idea, I, I hear a lot of, um, you know, people talk about having to, uh, you have to have some level of, well, we don't like the word, but concentration or tranquility or whatever, and you have to achieve some state and and achieve you know then achieving some attainment something like that is that is that a, again completely missing the point is it not about some some depth of of concentration it's just about presentness that's the word <laughs> well you see that the problem is with the various connotations mm-hmm. of the word con- uh, concentration we could define it in a way that was quite useful. Mm-hmm. But often people don't practice that way. Mm-hmm. That in fact, concentration is the result of people working too hard. Mm-hmm. And very, very light touch concentration is the result of right practice mm-hmm. or right effort in the, case, in the sense of just enough. Mm-hmm. In other words, all you need to do is just hit the enter key. You do not have to bang on the keyboard with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's when it so says I, hit the enter key, it doesn't mean literally. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> Concentrate. Relax. Uh-huh. Relax. Relax. I right because yeah. we want something. So that yeah. kind of concentration comes from wanting something. Yeah. 
and nurturing comes from I've already got it. Why, why should I want anything like concentration when I'm already here now? So that's a different kind of concentration, you see. Mm-hmm. One's easy and pleasant, and the other one is striveful and seemingly no end to it. Yeah. You never arrive. Yeah, because you never arrive. You keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, and you never get anywhere, always wanting more. And the other side of it with this is, hey, I've already got what I want. Mm-hmm. I've already got it. So you can see how revolutionary this is mm-hmm. in a teaching for the Westerners. And so if Zen can make that inroads, then that's really great. Because that's, that's why Zen has worked so well for me, I think. When I, when I first started practicing, I was, doing all, I was trying to you know, concentrate on the breath of the nose, really, you know, really, and I was getting really bad tension in my head, headaches and tension. Um, but it, I, it's only until when I started practicing, you know, the you know, no, no objects, that I finally sort of got it. I finally have begun to stop striving. And this brings me to a question, actually, that I was going to ask you. I've been pra- practicing Anapanasati, and sometimes when the mind is already fairly calm, it, I can easily just as I've said before, just note it, okay, I'm breathing now. And you know, it's sort of not, a, it's not a like, it's more like, okay, I'm breathing now. And the mind just sort of settles into the breath, right? But I found other times, I'll try and, especially when I'm doing the controlling the breath, you know, trying to do the long breath. The moment the mind switches towards trying to do a long breath or trying to watch the breath, immediately I ten- starts tensing up in my head and sometimes I find that, that trying to do the Anapanasati, if I'm doing it with the wrong mindset, I get lots of tension. Mm. Well, it must be since um, uh, Anapanasati very, very clearly, uh, basically within the first paragraph or two, is talking about relaxing. Right. So whatever you're doing, it must not be the right thing. And it might have to do with the attitude that you built up from the very beginning of your meditation practice. That you start that you started off uh, trying too hard, working too hard, getting up too much tension. So now, as soon as you begin, you just turn that tension right on. You know how to do it. Yeah. And when okay. I was doing the, when I was doing zazen, then I I, I um, it was almost like a different circuit I act I just didn't turn on that tension because I didn't have to I didn't think I had to try so it's sort of I was uh, yeah okay well there's several reasons why the uh, the breath is used mm-hmm. but one of the most important ones that we can say is is that if you can learn to control the breath then By controlling the breath, you're also learning to control the mind. Mm -hmm. And if you can continue to control the breath, then you're continuing to control the mind. And that this is not about going into some deep space. It's, It's more of the repetition of keep coming back to everything is hunky dory, everything is all right. And 
each in-breath then is a moment of sati in the sense that we know that it's a long in-breath and that the out-breath is in a point of sati in the sense that we know it's a long out-breath. Now, this long out-breath actually has the quality of the relaxation itself, to just relax. Ah. Almost with the thought, boy, I'm glad I don't have to have that tension when I'm thinking of the breathing, but I can just relax instead. But that's the motivation of the, of the, the breathing, mm-hmm. is to... Um, uh, confront or fall on or grab a hold of uh, the shallow breathing that's quite normal. And when I use those words, fall on and uh, grab hold of uh, or confront, these are actually Mahasi Savadar's words, translated into English from a book of his in 1965. So why the Mahasi method has gotten to a very easy practice of um, merely watching the breath. I think maybe because that most of the students would do all of this tension stuff that you're talking about. And so they're saying that go ahead and relax. But in a way, they throw the baby out with the bathwater because we really do want to work with the breath. We want to control it. If we can't control the breath, we can't control the mind. And not only that, but the important or interesting part of it is, is that if we, in fact, are controlling the breath, we're actually focused on the breath in a much stronger way so that the mind is much less likely to run away anyhow. That, that so, that's part of the problem with the, with the mind running away and wandering off is because uh, the meditator gives the mind every opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. To where we're going to start taking those opportunities away so that the mind can stay, let us say, within a vicinity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that we're going to do that. And in a way, we can say by keeping it in a vicinity, is another way of saying concentration. We're going to keep it in an area, but another way of looking at it within a vicinity means that we're getting it more and more unified, getting it more whole, right? So that's the way of looking at it. And one of the ways of of doing this is by putting the mind onto um, wholesome things and things that are happening in the here now because what's happening in the here now is always wholesome. And that always what is unwholesome is in the past or in the future, undone work, restlessness, remorse, worry, all of that kind of wanting things we don't have, all of that kind of stuff. And so all of that comes up basically out of the past because the mind, is, they say, I've heard, uh, within Buddhism, it's a monkey mind. <laughs> Jumping and jumping and jumping from thing to thing to thing. What uh, Freud would say was that it it is um, free association. That this thought is then free to jump onto any other thought. The Buddha even uh, said it in the way of that the mind is fast, O monks. I don't know of anything that is as fast. No analogy that I can say is to describe how fast the mind is. And you can think of it like this. 
um, you know Saturn with the rings? Mm -hmm. and, and you also know kind of what the moon looks like? Mm -hmm. And how it's different from the Earth? Well, now look, how long would it take light to go to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Saturn? And you just went there in your mind and back mm -hmm. again within a couple of mind moments. I mean, within two seconds, there you go. <laughs> so the mind's pretty fast. But it's even faster than that because your mind went only when I was talking and it took me a sentence to say and that sentence took 10 or 15 mind moments. <laughs> and so we begin to look at things very closely like that. The mind is fast. And because the mind is fast, that gives us something to work with, with the breathing. Because the breathing, slowing the breathing down and watching the breathing, that means that we spend one mind moment on sati on the in-breath. Is this long? Or on the out-breath? Is this a relaxed out-breath? Is this a long out-breath? And then we have other mind moments to gladden the mind, to say, wow, this is nice. We have a mind moment or two to feel really relaxed. We have a mind moment or two to feel content and satisfied. And then we're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path in, in Anapanasati. So by the time a breath cycle has happened, one cycle in, followed by uh, the out-breath, in that time, we have a lot of time to gladden the mind and throw out any hindrances and just, you know, do a general checkup. Every breath. So is it gladdening the mind? That's, so that's partly not letting in the wholesome thoughts and only letting in the wholesome, but is it also sort of inclining the mind towards appreciating the present moment? Of this present moment, the appreciation of this present moment, and one of the ways of, of, of spending mind moments mm -hmm is to apply the teachings of the Buddha, because in fact we know that the Buddha Dhamma teaching the wholesome is a wholesome teaching and therefore things that are worthwhile thinking about. And so mulling over the Dhamma, thinking about the Dhamma, uh, uh, being very pleased with the Dhamma, while we're breathing in and out and mixing this present moment in the sense of, ah, there's suffering, I see it. Aha, I know where you came from. And I'm going to relax and be in the third noble truth and say, hey, man, I don't have any problems right now. And then I will quickly review, uh, am, I, am I looking, am I seeing, can I see, can I wake up, how, how's my, how sharp is the mind? And we can start clicking these things off and then we can come back and start again. And this is really nice because what happens over periods of time with this is, is that we get the attitude that you can handle anything. Nothing can come by that you can't handle. That's the attitude that we're gaining by practicing being in the state of sukha. Hey, if I can bring myself to this present state, I could do it again. And I can do it again. And then no matter what happens, I can do it again. Doesn't matter what happens. I can come back and be in the present state. Because that present state is a skill to be developed rather than something that reacts to events. Okay. So, 
this is how we practice Anapanasati. And you can see now at the beginning of what we were talking about with that last moment of death before we died. But that's this moment right now. That's this moment. Every moment we're going to be dead. Every moment we keep dying and there's a brand new moment. So why attach to any particular one? Just practice right now. I think that there was a, a telephone commercial that, mm -hmm. were, that was all about a guy that was walking around with his cell phone. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? That's basically Anapanasati. Right. That's it. Except instead of a cell phone, we've got all of the senses. Can I see what's going on now? And what can you can you describe? I think it, it's the controlling the breath thing I'm having trouble with because I'm not used to it. How how can we do that in a in a way that's in a gentle way without straining? Well, there's experiments that you can do. Mm -hmm. One would be, if you don't think that you like the breath, then wait until you would like it and then breathe. Mm -hmm. Don't take a breath you don't like. So, so just maybe... In other words, don't let it be just automatic. Begin to take control of it with the point of view like you would have. Is you said, all right, I'm not going to breathe until I want it. Well, I really like it. So let it be as, as long as I, as feels comfortable. When you when you do breathe, if you go through that little ritual that I'm talking about, waiting five to 20, 30 seconds, I don't think many people will wait longer than 30 seconds, but there's a world champion who can wait 20 minutes. But you're not up at that level. You're up, and in fact, he broke his own record. He finally got it for 20 minutes. I think he was at four, seven, something like that. But you probably can't do it for 30 seconds. So you'll want a breath really soon. What kind of breath would you take a long if breath. you hadn't been breathing for a long time? A long breath. It would be a long breath. Funny about that. <laughs> okay. And you wouldn't give yourself tension at all. You'd think it was quite a relief to take that long, deep in breath. All right, so you already know how. I don't know what you're asking. <laughs> it's just, it's the mind. I can see, I can see the mind, a gear turns. There's a, and then there's tension. It's like, it's, well, it's, it's clockwork. It's the, you know, it is, it is um, cause and effect, isn't it? It's interesting. But the mind shifts into a certain gear and then the whole body is affected by, by that shift and it all tenses up. So, Keshi going into that gear and says, ah, I see you doing that. Yeah. And I'm going to sit here and have a nice deep in-breath anyway. Right. So just, I suppose, just continue to work with it. And, and um, I need to no. recondition those Sankharas. No. 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 Play with it. It's a toy. Okay. Your breath is a toy, a newfound buddy, a playmate. Not a, not work. 
no no work to do. Working is not right effort. It isn't really work, is it? Because no, couldn't possibly be. But the whole concept of the work is just a concept, and we pick that up in childhood. We'll talk more about that in another time. That's the yes. Sankara again. Yeah, there's no such thing as work, is there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. You don't have to play. You don't have to work with your breath. You can forget about what you used to do. Start to again. have this new this this new breath, a joyful, playful, brand new breath. Mm-hmm. Perhaps after you've waited thirty seconds until you're really ready for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, but by the way, I spoke to my my Zen teacher. I said I was um, talking to you. Uh huh. And she 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 said it was fine, but she's concerned. I, she's concerned that I'm dabbling with two different traditions. Uh, and she she says it's fine for now, but that at some point I'll have to choose a tradition. What do you think about that? Uh, in the reference that I've made that Zen is exactly the same thing as the Theravada in the sense of a jigsaw puzzle with a couple mm-hmm. of pieces m- missing. Mm-hmm. There's some things here and there that explain things, but those may or may not be uh, either hindrances or um, benefits. If they were not essential, or excuse me, if they were essential, Zen wouldn't have left them out. Mm-hmm. But they're often helpful. Mm-hmm. For, for, basically, for instance, is, is that Zen teaches the very highest stuff. It's like uh, they expect you to have to climb stairs, and each step is like six or eight feet. (laughs) And there's a big struggle to get to the next step to where the Theravada's got all the little things built in between. But it leads to the same place, so there's there's no issue of eventually. It's not an eventually they will separate. No, eventually she'll even see the turn the same thing. They come yeah. together. They are the same thing. It's and I feel that already. I don't think you're teaching. You're both teaching me the same thing in a sense. Mm-hmm. But then also, I, you know, she, um, uh, she wants me practicing zazen, and uh, and then I'm practicing anapanasati. There's there's a conflict there. There's, well, there's not. In, there's not really a conflict, but you could say there is. Uh there could be only conflict if, in fact, there were two completely different human beings. But since there are humans, you human doing this and then you human doing that, they're still just human with human frailties, human um, uh, instincts, human ways of thinking, and the Buddha taught about how that human can be free from his own disasters. And Zen and Theravada have uh, no conflict within each other because they have the same target audience. Mm -hmm. 
right, is directed toward the same thing. Anything that Zen has, Theravada has it also. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that Zen doesn't have a lot of the stuff that Theravada has. One of the reasons we know that that's the case is because, for instance, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has gone deeply into Zen. And that that area, uh, actually this area here in Thailand, was actually Mahayana 1,300 years ago. It has only yes. been Theravada for about 800 years. <laughs> I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, the more you know, the less distinctions that you make. Um, that in fact, they say it some way like that, like uh, a distinction without a difference. Okay, so uh, Theravada and Zen are distinctly not different. Yeah, <laughs> distinctly the same. Yeah. They're distinctly the same, but they're very distinct, each one of them. Yeah. But, they're, but they're the same thing. And what is that same thing? Freedom. Mm-hmm. That freedom is the same. It doesn't matter. Uh, every uh, Freedom is like the Sangha, in fact, is the analogy that every river is different. And each river is different from time to time depending upon the season and the mud and all of this kind of stuff. But once each river reaches the ocean, it joins with and becomes ocean water. That it is no longer distinctly river water. That that river water is only going to be detectable as river water, maybe from a satellite or an airplane. But that's only going to go just a little while, and then you can't see it it joins, it, it mixes together. And so this is the, the, the direction that we're looking for then is like the freedom. Freedom is the same. Freedom is freedom. And if the goal of Zen and the goal of the Theravada are exactly the same goal, then naturally they're going to share a lot of commonalities. And that's what you need to look for then is not the distinctions or the differences, but look for the commonalities because therein is that. where the truth is going to find you're going to find. I see that and I see as well that there's all these different meditation techniques, but more important than the technique is the attitude, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, that is one of the eightfold noble paths. Period and the sentence. Yeah, it is. There it is. It's right there in the path, along with right investigation, right view, right sati to wake up and look at what you're doing, and the right effort that it takes. So those four things put together will bring about unification of mind, mm-hmm. which is the the fifth item on the list, followed then by the three right be- speech, right action, and right. Um, livelihood that has been now perfected through the unification of mind. So now these are just things that nobles do. For instance, if you don't want anything, then it's unlikely that you're going to kill anybody for it. Right? If you don't if you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to try to take something from somebody. Or their even their reputation. If you don't have any um, competition left, 
then you're not competing with your students or other teachers or anybody. I mean, everybody's the same. And, and part of that competitiveness or that draining away of the competitiveness is coming from the right attitude of the lion. Now, I know that a lot of people won't understand this, but the attitude is, is that, hey, man, why should I bother to compete with anybody? I'm going to win every time. I always win. I set it up that way. I'm smart enough to know how to play this game so that I always win. And now I'm tired of winning, literally. <laughs> Donald Trump, you're going to get tired of winning? Right. <laughs> but literally, you do get tired of winning. You get tired of the competition because you know what the outcome is. All right. But guess what? Everybody thinks that anyway. I mean, everybody is winning in their own mind because that keeps them feeling such a loser. But they don't understand that, well, if that's what's going on, why am I competing? They keep competing and they keep competing and they keep competing. But when you when you know what's the point of competing, you're going to win anyway. <laughs> and so we stop competing. But that takes also a level of uh, mindfulness is begin to see I'm looking for something. I want to compete with people. Where, in fact, we would both be better off if we were good friends. And so there's where that wisdom comes in. From that feeling of wanting to compete into, I'm, I would be happier if I were friends with him rather than beating him at some <laughs> Dhamma contest or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I suppose, and see, I'm all just I'm creating this all in my mind because whatever the, whatever the situation is, it doesn't it. It's still I'm only creating it in my mind because mm -hmm. I feel I have to make I sure. feel I have to make a choice, and and I think it, I think when you feel that you have to make a decision, that's a sort can be a source of a, a lot of suffering potentially. Actually. That's because you have the doubt as to which direction to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with confidence based upon past experience of the knowledge that you can choose the right thing. Mm -hmm. Because you can see that nurturing the mind is a better choice rather than being critical. It feels better. Therefore, you begin to make the choice over and over again. As soon as I wake up and remember I've got a choice about what kind of thought I'm going to have, I'm going to have a nurturing thought. Yeah. And that feels better than a critical thought. Yeah. Knowing that, you'll begin to choose, I'm going to have nurturing thoughts, including nurturing thoughts about the breath. I don't see it. I don't see it as a... As if I start practicing Anapanasati, I have been. I don't see it as, as, you know, changing tradition or anything. Or it just feels like a natural uh, process learning from you, because you're just talking about the same things that other you know teachers talk about most of the time. It doesn't, and I don't really feel like I have a tradition anymore. Good. Well, you know, it's just, it's not even, and it's not even. As as one of my favorite authors says, it's nothing special. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? Yeah. 
but I can see I can see what she, what she's saying as well. Um, I suppose that, yeah. And I like I like the Zen practice a lot because it because it's sort of because of my inclination to try and do something. It works very well to not to help remind me not to do that. Um, but I can see that I can see that every time I speak to you, I I learn a, a huge amount. Um, so I I don't I don't know I have to maybe I, maybe I should stop worrying and just see yeah what, don't see what worry happens. be happy you've heard that before don't <laughs> worry it all does come together and then in fact um, so long as you're in there worried about it stirring it up things will remain cloudy but if you let the dust that's, settle that's remind you, that reminds me sorry sorry. Sorry, when you let the dust settle, then you can see what's going on. Yeah, that reminds me. That's the analogy I came up with. I'm trying to do the Anapanasati. It's like my mind, every time I try to do it, it's like it stirs up the water. And I, I want to just put it down. But I don't know how to put the cup down and then also be of the breath. Anyway, yeah. Um, the phrase in never mind why should you want it to settle down why don't you just watch it stir with a little bit knowing that it's okay you see much of what's going on is that you don't like what's going on mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so begin to pay attention to the fact that you don't like what's going on, and so therefore you want to stop it stirring, and you by stop trying to stop it stirring, you're actually keeping it stirred. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I think oh this this Anapanasati is isn't working for me. It's causing me more. Pro I'll, I'll just go back to I'll just go back to zazen. But it's sort of they're the same thing though. Yeah. They are the same thing, but Zazen is missing a couple of things that the students eventually have to plug in for themselves. Mm -hmm. One is, is to breathe well, because that gives you life. And that's already built into the teachings of the Buddha. But in fact, there's a lot of Zen that's about breathing too. Yeah. The breathing part's always been there, but what the little tiny piece is missing is the importance of it. Okay, that's kind of what's missing with Zen, is the fact that the breathing is so such a valuable part. This is the starting point. This is the first step. Um, and the other tiny little piece that's missing is the quality that is necessary for you to change the content of the mind. Wholesome versus unwholesome thought. And that opens that a whole world. Mm-hmm. It's a whole world that opens up, including the fact that now you're creating a corral so that you're only allowing the mind to be within this corral of wholesome thoughts. Yeah. And if you can't keep it in that corral of wholesome thoughts, if it keeps jumping back out of the wholesome thoughts, then we need to develop the skill of keeping it in within that context. And then if we can keep it in the inside the corral, we can start to shrink the corral down to Zen size. <laughs> okay, and so the Zen, they don't under, many of the brand new students don't understand this whole quality. You've got to corral this thing and bring it down to size. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why, we, and the first first boundaries of the corral that we put up is the boundaries of wholesome versus unwholesome thoughts. Mm. Okay, well, I could, I, as usual, I could continue on for a long time. Discussing, I know. But it's, it's, this <laughs> has been going an hour and a half. I know I like yeah. this stuff. I really like it. And um, so that's good. Uh, but I'll let you go now. So thanks for calling. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Uh, it's a joy. It's great joy. I love Good. Okay. Enjoy the rest Thank of your day, Samarato. Bye. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.